Blog Talk Radio. We have a special guest 
with us. We have Brother Alfonso. We would talk about the case of our sister, Latasha Wharton. Uh, she was assassinated in Miami, Florida on March 12, 2019. That's a case that many of y'all may have not heard about it. And what we want to do is share some light on it and see how we can support our sister and their family as it relates to Brother Latisha's assassination. And we'll do that with her brother. Brother Alfonso will come and share the story of her assassination with you. Following that, we will entertain the theme. Ain't all money, good money. We invited special guests, uh, organized writer, educator, uh, Brother Juan Mukito will come on and share a real interesting paper he just published um, dealing with uh, understanding the connection between our communities. And last but not least, we invited Brother Fio Walito from UAC, and we will talk about the continuation of the issue, ongoing issue of, anti, of the anti-war movement. That is our lineup for tonight. We encourage you to come and join us. And you can do that by calling in at 323-679-0841. Now, like always, on Africa on the Mood, where we can start with our party, we'll first introduce our political analysts and panelists for the day. Right now, we bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome Brother Haki to Africa on the Mood. Brother Africa. Thanks for having me. My name is Haki Gamafi Mishoki, and I'm crowned with African Awareness, and my thing is all about institution building. Uh, one of the things I think that institutes are extremely important is that recently I read an article in which a quote-unquote a black conservative talked about the fact that the Southern strategy, in fact, didn't exist. But although those of us who understand history understand Southern strategy did, in fact, exist. In fact, the originator of the term, Lee Atwater, who was a consultant for the Republican Party, was the one who was responsible for coining the term, or actually utilizing that term, sudden strategy. So this notion that it didn't exist is, is erroneous. And in fact, one of the things that happened in terms of Lee Boyle's life, that during the time of his transitioning, while he was down in his bed, he said that what he did, what he innovated, was in fact wrong. And he apologized to the African community for what he did. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, in addition to that, what he did was that, um, in addition to the, 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 the irony in terms of this black conservative physician, she talked about the fact that uh, Hitler's policies were germane if only they pertained, you know, inside the borders of Germany. Of course, this isn't taking consideration that when we talk about Hitler's atrocities, we got to understand his destruction of the lives of the Roma and the Jewish people inside of inside of uh, Hitler's Germany because he never he, he advocated Nazism. So for her to say that in fact that Nazism on any level is a good thing, it's absurd. Also, it serves to underscore, you know, this whole notion when 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 uh, Trump talks about. Uh, white nationalism, when he talks about nationalism, we understand that when he talks about nationalism, particularly uh, when we talk about in the context of German history, nationalism has nothing to do in terms of the interests of people outside of the group. And in fact, one thing to understand as a person of color in the society, that you're outside of the group. So this notion that uh, nationalism on any, on any level can be a good thing is absurd. But nonetheless, we need institutions in order to combat this kind of ignorance. Because without the institutions, we tend to embrace this kind of nonsense because it gets national visibility. And so with the institutions, we ensure that not only do we understand in terms of the, the, the irony in terms of what you're saying, but more importantly, we understand why it's so imperative that we move in terms of creating all institutions in the first place. So having said that, Brother Africa, I'll conclude, and I want to thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we're following Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. 
Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Brother Africa. Revolutionaries, t- greetings to you, our guests, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Finally, Brother Anthony. And then we're bringing Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. Peace, everybody. And to the listening audience, this is Brother Jabari, resident researcher. It's interesting. Tonight's topic is dealing with um, money. And one thing we got to understand, when you're in the capitalist, capitalist system, as you must understand it, we're living under a system where the money is merely just paper and doesn't have any real value because that's the whole point of the fiat system. As crazy as it sounds, it's all about what people project value to be, but it doesn't have a real value. Peace. Thanks, Chris Jabari. And we also have with us, we have Brother Moses. Brother Moses, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is this messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. I thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, right now we can go into our segment of what's going on in your world and the community. For today, we have with us Brother Alfonso. Uh, he has a story that he needs to share with our community. On March the 12th, 2019, in Miami, Florida, we lost a very special person. Our community did. And we want Brother Alfonso to do his first introduce himself. And Brother Alfonso, can you tell us the significant event of what took place on March the 12th, 2019 in Miami as it relates to your community and your family? So right now we can turn the mic over to you, Brother Alfonso. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. My sister was executed in Miami, Florida on March 12th. And ever since she's been executed, it's been hard for my family. We've been striving to be great as black people. It's so hard to be out here and be black. You know, and I just I just want to reach out to people who, who lost people. I mean, I lost my best friend, so I can't speak for everybody. I lost my mom when I was 11. Latasha raised me. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard dealing with this, coping with this every day, knowing that she's a part of my day-to-day life. You know, I just want to be able to get her story out. And let people know who Latasha really was. You know, Brother Alfonso, without going to any major details, because we understand your, your case is under litigation, but in terms of our listening audience, can you just talk in general? What happened to your sister on March the 12th? How was she assassinated? She was she was killed broad daylight. Um, my sister was executed. She was executed by a state trooper. By a state trooper, 
who felt he could shoot in the car. I can't answer why he did it. I can't tell you why he did what he did. The video shows what he did. I mean, if we're going to be gone, we don't supposed to justify and minimize our actions. We have to be responsible and accountable for our actions. I don't care if you're black, purple, blue, green. We all are human. We all should be responsible. And he killed someone who meant so much to all of us. He killed someone who was impacting a lot of people's lives. You know, and I just, you know, I just wish a lot of people could have met who Latasha met my sister and who she was and what she stands for. She's a great person, a great woman, a great black woman. You know, a lot of our black women are being disrespected. A lot of our black men are being executed. A lot of our white, I mean, our black people are being killed, you know, and I'm not racist. However, the whole more to my story is, man, we need to be treated right and sadly as human beings. You know, I just feel like my sister was, was more than life. She was great. She was a great person. She was unique. She was gorgeous from the inside and the outside. There's nothing a person can tell me about Latasha because nobody knows her like I know her. Nobody can tell me, bash her, and talk about her, call her out her name, and she's dead. I'm her voice. You know, my sister was everything to us, everything to her kids, everything. She was a great mom, a great friend, a great sibling, a great aunt, a great niece. She was unique. She, Our story is unique, man. Like, I was 11 years old when me and Latasha mom died. And Latasha was 15, turning 16. And I was a young, bad kid doing things I'm supposed to be doing, and I get a call out of nowhere. My grandma called me and told me, man, man, your mama's in the hospital. And I say, grandma, she going to be okay? My grandma and all them tell me, yeah. So we get to the hospital, you know, and the, the um, as soon as we get to the hospital, the incident, I was, I was being a bad kid. The police knew me in the, in the hospital, and they was, like, looking at me, and they was like, um, he, he's okay and the nurse looking at me she's like I can't tell this kid that his mom dead like you know how how, how a person just, just look at you and be like how am I going to tell these kids that mom dead and so Latasha went there you know Latasha was with her cousin you know whatever and then she get the call that my mom was dead so she they rushed her to the, to the hospital and we're crying we're kids you know we're kids me and my other sister Allison and Latasha, she's crying too, but she tells us, this how I knew she was a God, she was God, and she tells us, I got y'all, everything gonna be alright. And she was, she was pregnant with my nephew, LaFortune, <clears throat> and she told us everything gonna be alright. She right, she wiped the tears from me and my sister's eyes and told us everything was gonna be alright. And we looking at her like, you're 16 years old, you're 15, 16 years old, you gonna tell us it's gonna be alright. Mom gone. She's like, I got y'all. Like, I got y'all. I'm going to make sure y'all okay. And, you know, ever since then, my sister was 16 years old. She had to transition from being a child to being a mother, young. And she didn't have to do it. She did it because she loved us. She did it because she wanted the best for us. She did it because she was God sent. She did it because she felt like it was the right thing to do, you know. And 
for a person to, to leave like how she left, I never thought my sister would die and get executed. Like, my sister got shot like she was a dog in the street. To be honest, I'm brutally honest. She got shot like she she was a dog in the streets. I mean, he hunted my sister, you know. Driving radical don't deserve to get shot. Driving radical don't mean you get killed. You know, I know a lot of people drive radical. They don't die. I know a lot of people squirm and get tickets. I know a lot of people get blocked off. I know a lot of people go through things that's necessary. But I said that wasn't necessary for her, you know. And if you're human, you know it wasn't necessary for her. Putting yourself in my shoes and knowing how much of an impact she was in my life. And if you got loved ones, putting yourself in my shoes, having empathy and and being able to relate from me and my family and what we're going through in this desperate time and needing need support. Come on, nobody doesn't deserve that. We all human. I don't care if you're black, white, purple, green. It don't even matter. We all have the ability to do the same thing. We all have the ability to be unique. We all have the ability to change each other's lives. We all have the ability to do the same things. Everybody have a voice. Everybody has a voice. You know, and right is right and wrong is wrong. You know, I just feel like our laws are not right. I feel like if a person commits a crime, you are a suspect, and the person dead is the victim. Facts. You know, I don't feel like we should have a lawyer to represent us for the death of my sister, and we know who killed her. Like that's that's common sense. Like, where's the justice? Where's the where's the where, where are we coming to? You know, we black. He's not. Like, is it a racial issue? Like, what is it really? And, you know, the whole more of my story is that I just want to be treated fairly. I just want to be treated with dignity and respect. And we all do. We all, are, as people, are unique. We all, as black people, are different. You know, we get up every morning and we're hated just for being the color we are. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. We get up, happen to go to work. It's going to be a hard day. You know, our people don't went through too much for us to continue to go through these trials and tribulations. You know, I mean, it's only right for us to do the right thing, man, and knowing what's right is to stand up for what's right, common sense. Enough talking. We have to put in action on what's really going on. You know, our voices are being heard, but is it justice being served? There's no justice being served. My sister wasn't no dog on the street. My sister didn't stand for for that. My sister didn't deserve to get killed. She didn't deserve to get killed. I don't care if anybody's driving radical. This man killed several people in the pol- in, in the church. They took him to Burger King. He ain't die. He killed people. He ain't die. So, like, put yourself in my shoes. Like, what's really going on in our society and our communities? And, for, for us to have police officers, I don't feel like we should have police. We pay their taxes. If we can control our own communities and be there for one another and have unity, we should be able to control our own communities. You know, police are just as human as us. They, they, what they make what make them superheroes by them having badges so they can abuse their authority. To be honest with you, police officers, I mean, I feel like, this is my opinion, I feel like, you have some good ones, you know. You have some good police officers. I don't hold off all accountable for that. 
you know, but hey, majority of the police officers, man, I mean, they just, they do things for no reason, man. Like, it, it's not necessary to, to just pull out your gun and, and, and come on, we grown people. We're grown. Everybody deserves respect. That's my whole more to this story. Everybody deserves respect. I don't care if you're black, white, Caucasian, like, like Mexican, Puerto Rican, Dominican. It don't even matter. It don't even matter. We all are human. We all have the ability to do the same thing. We don't want war. We want peace. My sister died. She's gone. I can't bring her back. I just want justice for what's right. We will all want justice for what's right. A lot of people out here don't have voices. A lot of people out here don't have nothing to, to come back on. Or, I have memories of Latasha, of pictures. I can't see her right now physically. I know she's here with me spiritually, but I can't see my sister no more. She's gone. The officer who kept my sister, he's still out here. How do you think we sleep every night knowing that she's executed and she's, she's gone? Like, we, have to, we, also, we also have to be grown and be human. Feel, have to have feelings. I'm numb. I'm numb. Like she's gone. Like my, that's my best friend. That's my hero. Alfonso, it is her understanding that she was allegedly pulled over for some kind of traffic violation, and she ended up getting being shot at least six times by the police officer while driving a B a B BMW. Now, when we talk about your sister, you said she was a mother. How many children yes, did she sir. have, and how did the community really uh, value her in terms of her service to the community? How would you say they would describe the importance of her being a, a good servant to the community? Man, my sister was my sister was a support to a lot of people. You know, my sister. People, I don't even like to speak on my sister's behalf when it comes to people because people can speak on her behalf, you know what I'm saying? And me knowing what type of person she was and telling y'all what type of person she was, it, it makes me very furious because I, I really wanted y'all to be able to meet her on a different circumstance, on on totally different circumstances, man. I wish you could have been able to meet Natasha. She's a beautiful woman, a unique woman, a very powerful woman. And, you know, as we all want to be is, is, is respected, everybody wants to be respected. You know, she always gave us the, the morals and values to life on what's really important, family. Family, you know. And I feel like since Latasha has left, man, my family is my people. My family is my people. My people, you know. And... You know, I just want to have, I just don't want my sister name to die in vain of who she was and what she created. I am Latasha. You are Latasha. We all are Latasha. We all are Trayvon Martin. We all are Mike Brown. You know, we all are them. We have to have empathy. We have to put ourselves in their shoes, you know. So, you know, it's, it's about Latasha because that's my sister. But it's about several other people, man, who ain't have voices whose stories didn't get out there, who didn't have the support. You know, and you know, I just want us as black people to understand like we'll we'll always be hated. We'll always be hated. You know? You can't change that. You can't. We have some of our panelists who may have a question comment they'd like to make to you. But before they do that, 
Can you just talk a little bit about some of the upcoming activities? What's going on in terms of how can the community support you and your remaining family members? What can they do and what are some of the activities that may be coming up where the community, the community can be supported? Um, I mean, I'm doing a lot of stuff on Latasha, you know. I'm trying to get her a day. You know, I want I'm doing a rally for we're doing rallies. Um, I'm gonna postpone this rally for the nineteenth. I was doing a rally on the nineteenth, but it's a lot of people coming in, checking in with me and stuff and they wanna be able to make it and they can't make it. So, you know, I'm trying to make it flexible for a lot of people to be be there and, and show support. It's a lot of people been showing support to me, you know. And they like Alfonso, you're very strong, you know. I'm like, Latasha built me to be this way. Got to understand, my mom left when I was 11 years old, so my childhood, my sister raised me, you know. And, you know, everything she taught me, man, she just taught me to be humble, stay grounded, and just stay stay, stay in the root and believe, was, believe in what's right, you know. And, you know, I just, to, I just tried to have respect for others. I just tried to be great. You know, even though we're in the flesh, you know, we all do wrong. However, the whole more to the story, don't act like y'all don't do wrong. When y'all do the more, the more wrong than us, we just, we, we all human. But but y'all have to be responsible and accountable for your actions too. And that's, 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 that's why, I, that's where they go wrong at. Because, I mean, it's not, it's not based on your skin color. It's based on who you are as a person, you know. Never been a racist person. I always had Caucasian friends, Mexican friends, Puerto Rican friends. And, you know, I I, I I can't I can't live with with waking up and being hated by somebody or having somebody hate me for who I am. I can't live with hating somebody for who they are. I can't I can't do it. My my soul won't let me do that. And, you know, the police officers. I mean, we in the book of Joshua's man. We fighting giants. You know, they're, they're giants. You know, they got badges. They abuse their authorities every day. You know, I don't feel like we need police officers if we control our own communities and our own society. We can chastise our kids on bringing them up in the right society in the right way. You know, so, you know I just feel like everything can change and everybody can get along. You know, that's, how I, that's, 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 that's a, a belief I have in it, it should be like that because we all are human. There's nothing a person can do that I can't do. There's nothing you can do that they There's nothing you can't do that they can do. Money means nothing. Money means nothing. We all are promised to do, leave this world. We all are promised to leave this world, man. You know? You just want to leave on the right on the right circumstances, man, on the positive energy. You know, I live off energy. I live off positivity, you know? I just feel like everybody should be able to get along, you know. Okay, Father, I don't, I don't get At this one time, we got a couple of people may want to ask you a question or make a statement of support. We're going to open up the mic to a couple of people, and then at the end, we want you to make a final appeal to the community and share with the community in terms of how they can stay in contact with you and how they can support again. Support you. So right now, let's go to this caller six zero two nine. Caller, why could you ask her to move six zero two nine? Call your statement. Support a question, please. Six zero two nine. Caller six zero two nine. Question or comment, please. Six zero two nine. 
Okay. Let's go to caller 6057. 6057. Your question or comment, please. Hello? Yes. 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 Um, my question is, um, uh, first of all, I want to express my condolences on, on the transition of uh, your sister. And uh, just um, basically it's more of a, uh, an observation. Basically, uh, this society has never valued African people as human beings. Exactly. And uh, today, uh, you know, increasingly, our our sisters and our youth in general are the victims of that disregard for our humanity. Uh, this society, ever since it was cr- uh, it was created, uh, saw Africans as a source of a uh, of uh, uh, resource and cheap labor. And uh, and when they and uh, and when the you know the ruling class of this society can't exploit your labor anymore, they have they have no use for you. So unfortunately, your uh, uh, your sister was a victim of this sort of attitude, but it's but it's pervaded throughout U.S. history. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the only way we can put uh, an end to it is if we come together as a people, uh, regardless of our geographical location, language, religious differences, whatever. We're being oppressed because we're Africans. And, uh, you know, the various capitalist forces of this world want control of Africa's resources and its labor. And uh when they can't control that, uh you know, uh uh you know you you you're seen as expendable and we're all victims of that. Okay, let's go to our next thank you for your comment, Carla. Let's go to our next caller, three 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 zero. Your question comment, Carla, three 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 zero. Yes, my question um, to the brother, first and foremost, prayers and condolences are extended to you and your family. My question is, in terms of um, the racial climate in Miami, are there certain things in place that enable things like this to happen where um, black or African youth are oftentimes profiled by the police for one reason or another? You know, I mean, I'm not from Miami, but I mean, I can tell you this here. I have people from Miami, man. Miami Department, Miami, period, is one of the nastiest places you want to be, man. You know, there's a lot of people dying down there by cricket cops, by people who abuse their authority every day. And it's not right. It's not right in other places either, you know. But I know for, for a fact, like, we don't need the police. Like, we don't need them. If, if, if we're paying them taxes and they're abusing their authority on us. Why are we paying them? We pay we pay for the police to protect us and serve our communities. If we can take if we can take control of our own communities, why would we need the police? Why would we need them on shift? They're they're not doing nothing to benefit us. They're not helping us. They're not helping us be great. They're not showing us how to be safe. You got a lady who called the police to help her, and they beat her up. Like, come on, man. People traumatized out here. People don't even know how to react. So they get pilled, get 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 pulled over by a police. They scared. 
we have people out here who are really scared of police, man. Like, seriously. Like, police, state troopers, they're, they're, come on, man. We see stuff every day that go viral, and it's not right. Every single day, we have to come together as people. We have to put our differences aside and look at the cause. It could be your family. Your family can be in Latasha's shoes. His family can be in Latasha's shoes. This person's family can be in Latasha's shoes. We have to open our eyes and put aside our differences and, and go for the right cause. It's point blank, period. It's enough talking. It's enough talk. We talk a lot. We do a lot of talking. We do a lot of talking as people because we do have voices. However, if no action is being put in place, what are, what, what, what are we going to do? We're being hunted. We're being hunted by police. We're being hunted. By people, you know, oh man, we gotta, we got, we gotta leave this earth. So we have to serve a purpose for the right cause. We okay, have to serve a purpose for the right cause for the for the for the people. Giving giving peace, respect. There's ways you come about situations, however, you know. But don't you think we we're tired of getting killed? You got Malcolm X stand for something. Martin Luther King stand for something. Rosa Parks stand for something. Harriet Tubman stands for something, you know. Like we have people out here who who really meant so much to us, man. They they're, they're leaving on unjustified actions, and we see it on a day to day basis. But we ain't gonna say nothing. We ain't gonna be real with ourselves. We're gonna be scared of our, we're gonna be scared of our thoughts. Can we get you? Yes, we got about less than three minutes. Can we get you make a closing statement? and share with the audience how they can stay in contact with you and how they can support you. Okay, um my Instagram is um my Instagram my Instagram is um Maman M A N M A N underscore five thousand. Um um my um I don't have a I don't have an email address. My sister has a, her email address. Um it's right dot Allison ninety five at Yahoo dot com. I be using hers because I don't have no email. But um, um, we got a um. I'm gonna start a foundation for Latasha, Latasha Walton Foundation. Um, doing a lot of stuff, man. I'm 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 trying to do a march for. I'm trying to do a lot of stuff for, but I can't do it by myself. I'm trying. I'm trying to do it. You know. You know, I just need a little support, help. You know. Other than that, I'm I'm just I'm just taking a day at a time, trying to stay grounded and. You know, trying to keep her name alive as this far. But I mean, you see the video. My sister's story is going to get big. The video shows her what's going on. You know, we just try to stay humble. Mr. Crump, that's my lawyer. He's been more than a lawyer to me. He's been family. He shows support. He's human. You know, and he just he's just been great. He's been great to, her, to my family. Going through, brother, going through these different times. On the new brother, that files, we're going to do all we can to get this word out. We encourage our audience who listen to this program to reach out to the brother to help him in any way that you can. And uh, we know that these cases are cases that will continue to go on until we can find a way to organize our people to the point that we can defend ourselves and demand the kind of respect that is due to us as as a free people. So, Brother Alfonso, we thank you for your sharing your story with us today. Anytime anything that comes up, feel free to contact us and let us know we are here for you. And 
right now, what we're going to do is we're going to do a station break. We're going to pause for this cause. When we come back, we're going to talk about our theme, All Money Ain't Good Money, and we're going to bring in our special guest today, Brother Wally Mokito, who wrote a very interesting paper as it speaks to the relationships and the interconnectedness of our communities. We're going to have that dis- important discussion when we come back from, that, from our break. This is Africa on the Move, and we'll be right back.
to the African communities in Colombia and throughout the world. And we're going to have this particular discussion today because we need to understand how we are connected as a community. So right now we'd like to bring in our author, our writer, our educator, Brother Wally Mukita. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, on behalf of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and myself, but, uh, we're always um, very appreciative of having an opportunity to make our contribution to the political education of our people. So we're, we're very happy to be a part of this program. You know, Brother Wallerman, in terms of your title, All Money Ain't Good Money, when we look at this article that you research and talk about the connectedness of our communities here and abroad, can you tell Alice's audience what motivates you to research and write such a paper? Well, um, here in Cincinnati, uh, there is a what they call a gentrification process in place, um, and, and uh, I'm very clear it's not particular to this area. I just happen to live here in, in Cincinnati, um, and I just so happen to work uh, at a high school. Uh, and in the community which this high school is, this African community, uh, the powers that be, corporate, um, you know, local governmental, et cetera, have made the decision that the African community must go. And the process by which they do that is to, you know, force us out of the community and to begin to, quote, unquote, improve it by rehabbing it and then displacing you know, our population, our people, and, and bring in uh, those of European descent. And that process is taking place in, uh, in Cincinnati. So part of the process included the building of a professional soccer stadium in the heart of the community. And I made the decision that I would research who was behind the effort to put a professional soccer stadium that would seat 25,000 people within 100 feet of a high school and in the heart of the African community. And in doing that research, uh, I realized or came to find out that there was a capitalist uh, by the name of George Linder who owned uh, Chiquita Bananas International and other uh, entities that was the majority shareholder of the building of this stadium. I made and, uh, and his money. And one of the things I found out was that, you know, A, uh, the Linder family owns Chiquita Brennan, Chiquita Brant International, which operates in Central America, uh, in particular uh, in Colombia. And that's when it got kind of complicated because in Colombia, where these bananas are produced, and we every day about the United States. Uh, what I found out was that Africans lived in the areas that these bananas were being produced, and for banana production to be done uh, in these countries, in Colombia in particular, they had to create vast uh, plantations for that to take place, and the only way that was going to happen was that the peasants 
and the peasants are African and also Indian people or native people, indigenous people, they lived in these areas. And to acquire that land, seeing that the African population, the indigenous population didn't want to give it up, uh, the Chiquita Brand International hired paramilitary organizations uh, to force them off the land. And force them off meant that they had to be killed. And so um, what I found out was that um, Chiquita Brand International had given an organization in Colombia $1.7 million over the course of five or six years uh, to, protect, to protect its banana plantations. And also this organization um, was tied to international drug trafficking. And so they also uh, were hired to protect, or they're a part of the drug trafficking business to protect the production of uh, coca, for the production of cocaine. And so now you had a U.S.-based corporation based in Cincinnati that was financing an organization that the uh, U.S. government says controlled 40% of the cocaine coming out of Columbia. And so why that was important is because in Colombia, this corporation and others and the United States government are committing mass murder against the African population and also the indigenous population. And then at the same time, they are acquiring the African community in Cincinnati to build a place of entertainment for them because, of course, Africans... um, are not going to a professional soccer game. They can't afford it. We can't afford it, et cetera. And I just thought it was important that the African community in Cincinnati know that this was what, who they were dealing with. Because one of the things we find in history is that when we fight against the system, the first thing it does is offer us money. And that's why all money ain't good money. Because in this instance, it's blood money. And an African in the United States or in Cincinnati who knows that our people are being killed in, uh, in, in Columbia and willing to take the money that's coming out of Columbia to entertain the, the rich and the wealthy here uh, is, is a very unprincipled African. And so at, at a minimum, um, the purpose of writing the paper and doing the research was for the purpose of political education is to make our people aware of what we are confronted with. Because in actuality, we're fighting a system of capitalism uh, and imperialism that, that exploits not only our people here in the United States, and that's some of the stuff that uh, the brother uh, and the program prior to this one were talking about, the question of, of the murder of our people at the hands of, of the police because there's no difference than the murder of our people in, uh, in, in, in the United States at the hands of the police. There's no difference between that situation and the murder of our people on the, on the plantations and in the countrysides of, of Ecuador and Colombia and Guatemala, et cetera. There is no difference. And the only way that that will cease is that uh, we organize, uh, organize ourselves to stop it because the system of uh, capitalism knows no mercy. And, and for people who are not free, uh, which we are not, 
this is the reason we can be treated the way we're treated, and this is the reason that we can be taken off this earth because we do not have the power, the organized power, to defend ourselves. And once that takes place, and then we will see change for the masses of our people. So that was the driving um, point that, that I for wanting to write this paper and will continue to write to expose the viciousness and, and, and the unbridled exploitation and oppression of our people worldwide because history has also documented that our people are people who fight for justice. And sometimes at the level of the masses, we don't know who to direct our struggle at. And I think it is the role of the intelligentsia of our people to make sure that our people have the information that they need to direct their energies and their efforts squarely at. So that's why I wrote the paper. You know, in that opening statement, Brother Wadamu, you raised some fundamental questions that I think will become very important to, particularly to our community organizers, as it relates to trying to figure out which way forward for our communities. Now, one of the issues you somewhat touch upon is this question of why is it important for us to know where our money is coming from? Why is that significant? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, again, I think what's important is that everyone needs money to survive. There's no question about that. But, again, we are a people who are not free. And and, and until we take hold of that reality, um, then we then, then we keep ourselves in a react reaction mode, you know, because we react to Tavon Martin or we react to others who have been assassinated by by the police. We react because we're not organized to take action. Um, but those of us in the struggle know, and the enemy knows. And again, when I use the word enemy, I'm I'm talking about those who advocate and support and, 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 and organize for the system of capitalism. Um, capitalism is a system that believes that everyone can be bought. There is a price that we all have. And when you're fighting against the system of capitalism, and, and the brother mentioned earlier like Malcolm or Martin Luther King or Nkrumah or Fidel Castro or Sebo Ture or you know, and, and, and I, I say men, but there, there are numerous women also, uh, and, and women have remained and are on the front line of our struggle. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that the system's way of trying to deter you from making a contribution to fight against it is to offer you things. It is to offer you money. It is to offer you jewelry. It is to offer you whatever it is that you are willing to take to stop what you're doing. And the reason that they assassinated Malcolm X is he couldn't be bought. The reason they couldn't they they they, uh, they assassinated Martin Luther King is because he couldn't be bought. The reason that they destroyed the Panther Party with Cointel Pro is because there were brothers and sisters in it that couldn't be bought. You know, and we can go from country to country to country. In, in terms of our, where our people are and those who step up to fight against the system of, of oppressed exploitation, and we can see assassinations take place, and we can see murders take place of those who cannot be bought. And so what's important is, you know, when I, when I raise the issue of um, the money, and all money is not good money, is you've got to know 
when people are offering you things as it relates to the struggle, when they're suggesting you maybe if you join me and do it my way, then it's it's a it's a more practical way or it's it's a way that's gonna get greater results. When the history says that the only way that African people have benefited who have who have uh, progress is through the struggles of the masses of the people. And so it's not it's not the electing mayors in the office or congressional people, senators. That is not where change is made or President of the United States, including Barack Obama. Change does not come that way. Change comes from in the streets amongst our people. And so some of the greatest changes of or concessions that have been made, even in the United States, were made after mass rebellions across this country. And it's also true in Africa and Central America, et cetera, where they always attempt to find a way to stop the movement of the people. And until they realize they cannot make any concessions or they have to make concessions, um, then they begin to offer you things other than what you want. And what African people want is freedom. And what I mean by freedom is that whatever decisions that we make as a people, we have the power to implement it. So right now, we, we have no power. We don't have power anywhere in the world. So we may want to do something for our own benefit, but we do not have the power to do it because we're not organized. And so, it's again, it's just important that we don't go on the payroll of the enemy. And the payroll of the enemy is more precise. Is we don't want to be the stitches, the informants. We don't, we don't want to work for the other side for money. And if you look at the assassination of, of Malcolm, the guy that gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation was the police. If you look at Fred Hampton and the Panther Party, his bodyguard was the police. I mean, and we can go organization to organization, movement to movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People who constantly make decisions that they're going to work against the best interests of our people. And so that's why I thought it important that we raise the issue of the money. And it acknowledges that we need it, but there is a point when we have to suffer because we're not going to sell our our principles. We're not going to sell our our values. We're not going to settle, sell those things of which we believe at any cost. And that's 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 the point of, the, of that uh, that title. You know, Wallamu, you made a very concrete connection between the inner cities inside Ohio, Cincinnati, to some of the oppressed areas and cities inside of Columbia, particularly African communities. You know, often when we talk to our people, they ask the question, uh, why should we be concerned about Africans in Colombia or any other part of the world? Why is it important to have a global concern as relates to other cities where African people may find themselves? Well, it, it's, an, it's important, again, because our struggle is a struggle for freedom. Our struggle is a struggle for liberty. It's not a struggle for civil rights, as, as many may argue here in the United States. Uh, Malcolm was more precise, I think, when he said the struggle is for human rights. The only way that 
African people will be free. And we live in every country uh, in, in the world. But the only way we will be free is that we are organized as a people on a global basis. And, and that was the same concept that Garvey had. The thing about capitalism and, and, and European imperialism is, is if you harm a European or U.S. citizen somewhere in the world, they are prepared to send their military to correct the situation. And the United States came into existence through violence, and it, it extends its, its dominance uh, in the world through violence. Um, so the, the fact is, and again, it was spoken to earlier, the exploitation of, of African people, the oppression of African people, it has no boundaries. They are killing our people in the United States, uh, and they're killing our people in Colombia, killing our people in Africa. AFRICOM is in Africa. There are military operations of the United States in Africa. They're killing our people. NATO is in Africa. They're killing our people. You know, everywhere in the world Africans live, uh, we are being murdered, oppressed, exploited by the same people. The system is international. And the reason there's an African in uh, Cuba or Jamaica or Bahamas or Peru or wherever, the reason they're in these different places is because of European pillars, and that's why they dropped us off. And that's the primary distinction between what separates us. We speak different languages, and Portuguese drop folks off here, so they speak Portuguese. The British drop some here, so they speak English. The French drop some, they speak French. But we are the same people. And as a people, we will never be free until our homeland, the land of which we all come and are connected, is free from capitalism, from imperialism, from Zionism, and all the other isms that operate on the African continent. That's just a fact of reality. And so we should be as just as angry about what happens to a brother or sister in another part of the world as angry as we would be one that happened 100 miles away, 200 miles away, like the brother talked about in Miami or in Michigan or in Cincinnati. It doesn't make it. It's, it's the same issue. And so until that consciousness begins to express itself in anger and in the willingness to fight for the eradication of these injustices, we will remain in the same situation that we're in. And so what is important for this issue of being concerned about Africans uh, in other parts of the world, all of us need to be a part of the same organization. In that way, we can address the common problems and the common aspirations that we have as a collectivity. And, you know, the reality is, of course, you start in your, your community, uh, in the country in which you live, and all, but the, the point is that we can't stop here. The system which oppresses us is not a local system. It is an international system, and so we must fight it on an international level, and, and that's why it's important to be uh, 
as concerned about the plight of Africans in other parts of the world other than the one in which we live. You know, in your paper in Walamu, you you talk about the relationship between U.S.-based agribusiness and the U.S. government and their role in Colombia and Central America in the distribution of cocaine and other illicit drugs. Can you talk a little bit more about that aspect in terms of making that people more conscious of devil's type of relationships and how they have and are impacting their communities? Well, there is a history of involvement of, of the U.S. government in international drug trafficking. And, uh, again, it has everything to do with business because one of the largest corporations in the world is the trafficking, the production and trafficking of drugs internationally. And it's one of the largest corporations in the world. And even though that the uh, they attempt to make it appear that the issue of drug trafficking is a young brother or a sister on a corner somewhere in the, in the hood with with some Nikes on and, and sagging pants, that that is the drug dealer. That is so far uh, from the truth because th- those young men and, and to some degree women are nothing but the victims of the system because you do not see billionaires being arrested for drug trafficking and that's who drug, traffics drug in nasty. And there are individuals uh, of course, in the United States that are participating in the production of and the trafficking of drugs, even here in the United States. I myself used to be a drug counselor, and uh, I used to pose the question to the people I, I, I counseled and worked with was, how much dope does it take to serve every addict in the United States on a daily basis? And that gives you the magnitude of the co- corporation of drugs. And so politically what the United States government has done historically is because the traffickers of drugs are also supporters of capitalism and imperialism because in a socialist society they don't exist. So any set of forces that are fighting to bring a society of socialism where the people are in power, the people are governing society at the level of the grassroots, and, of course, those things won't exist. They are willing to fight. And so there's an alliance between the CIA, there's an alliance between the U.S. military. There are alliances that are established because there's a common goal, and the common goal is, is to defeat the forces of progress. The common goal is to defeat the forces of revolution so that the exploitation of the people and the resources of those countries can stay as they are. And so when uh, Hassenfuss was shot down in Nicaragua and Hassenfuss was transporting guns to the Contras, when he was shot down in Nicaragua, he made a call to a guy named Alex Rodriguez, who was a Cuban uh, fighting against Fidel. Now, of course, that means he was supported by CIA or CIA himself. And Rodriguez made a call to Oliver North, who was in the White House. So here you have a pilot that's in the, in the, in the uh, process of distributing 
guns to the to the conscious who makes two phone makes one phone call, but within two phone calls is in the White House. And these are the same pilots. Not only do they fly guns, they fly the drugs. And there's a small air base or uh, air port in uh, Costa Rica that was a conduit for drugs uh, by the cartels in, in, in Central America and at the same time was a conduit for guns to, uh, from the CIA. And so there's a marriage between the drugs and the politics. And this is in Afghanistan. It's in Vietnam. When the, when the, the Vietnam War was was, was waging, uh, heroin was coming, opium was coming out of the Indochina, uh, cocaine is, is coming out of Central America, Peru, Colombia, et cetera, you know. And these are all areas that the, the United States government and CIA and military operate. So it cannot happen without their knowledge, and it cannot happen without their acquiescence. And what they tend to do is make it look like uh, that the, the drug distribution is a local issue. And, that's again, that's why these young brothers are, are on television in handcuffs in the back of a car talking about he's, he's selling dope. But when the real dope is, is, is billionaires, the real drugs is at the level of the corporate elite and the real level at the, uh, at the level of the, of the United States government. Those are real dope dealers. But none of them have uh, you will ever see arrested because uh, the, the enemy is very shrewd. You buy the image that the the community, our the community in which we live, is is drug infested, not the community of millionaires and, and billionaires, and of course uh, that's where the real the real drugs are at. So that's the relationship between the U.S. government, the corporation, and, and the uh, and the international drug traffickers. They are allies in the process of uh, exploitation and oppression. Okay, listen, audience, at this point in time, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're gonna, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break. When we come back, we're going to bring in our political panelists. They will raise some issues based upon what has been stated in the article, All Money Ain't Good Money. And we'd like to invite you to participate by calling in at 323-679-0841. When you call in, please hit 1- and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So we will continue the discussion in two minutes. We'll be right back, and you are listening to Africa on the Moon. That's, up. So That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mosaddegh. Allende. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist. Got the strip with getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you the 
Getting ready for Syria First black president The masses were hungry But the same president Just bombed an African country Like...
I do understand the question, but the, the reality is our people don't even know they're African. Our fight is amongst ourselves. And there's, at this stage, there's nothing that I see that we can do as it relates to the racism of, of, of European society. And if we're able to organize ourselves as a power block, then we will be in a position to speak with one voice with those people if they are racist. Because now, you know, if, if, if you're talking revolution, and I'm not advocating anything, but the revolution is about the seizure of power. And as Africans, power is grounded for us in Africa. And so I don't even see the the workers, etc., other nationalities as critical for what our objective has to be, which is pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. That, is, that has to be our object as a people worldwide. And if we realize that objective, the relationships we have with Europe or Asia or whatever, we base upon our ability to speak with one voice and the, and the power to defend ourselves and the power to address any uh, group or national or class that is bringing harm to our people. Okay, let's go to the next call. Caller Ebony. Brother Ebony, your question or comment? Yes. Yes, certainly. Um, uh, Walimu, uh, uh, a couple of questions uh, uh, unrelated. One, uh, to what degree has um, has the creation of a buffer class inside the African community worldwide uh, impeded, uh, you know, our, uh, impedes our organization. Uh, what I'm alluding to is the fact that uh, that there are that, that there are elements inside the African community that that work against the interests of African people. And uh, to what degree has that held back and plays into the hands of uh, imperialism? Well, I think the development of these various sectors, uh, and I call them uh, sectors, that process was, was moving or in place before we came in contact with any other nationalities outside of Africa. I think that's the natural evolutionary processes involved in economic development and production, et cetera. Um, I think when you when when you're talking about hindering the, the hindering is is they don't really hinder because out of that group there's gonna be a very small sector that will abandon their class interests. Because I think you're really talking about students and intelligentsia. If you're mm-hmm. talking about business business people, business people trying to make money, and money becomes more important than the people. But I think when you're talking about uh, who is responsible for the education of of our people, it is the students and the intelligentsia. We mm-hmm. are sent to the university 
by our people. It's not an economic issue. I went to the university. I didn't have any any resources to go to the university. I, we were very poor. But after the rebellions of the 60s, particularly after 1968, when we set America on fire coast to coast, the the enemy made concessions to 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 put out resources that allowed African youth to leave their communities and go to school. And that was their strategy to um, deter the militancy that was that was evident inside the African community led by the youth. And, you know, going to the university, some make the decision that they're going to continue to struggle and fight for the, their people as they understand their responsibility to do. And, and some make the decision that they're just going to live a life of leisure because the struggles of our people have allowed some of us to live uh, extremely well. And, and our bank accounts are pretty large. I just saw today Camilla uh, Harris, they made $1.8 million last year. You know, So some have benefited economically from the struggles of the masses of the people. But what's important, and to your question, is that there there has to be, you know, those who stand for the people. We have a responsibility to go amongst them and to give them the information that we have acquired at the university or whatever, wherever we have gotten it. But we, that's our task. Um, and that's why we were sent to school by our people. We weren't sent there to become accountants for the system and this, that, and other, although there's no nothing wrong with that because we all have to eat. But our people need accounts too. Our people need doctors. Our people need lawyers. Our people need those things necessary to sustain their lives. And those who have that information, those who have that expertise, have a historic responsibility to provide those uh, that expertise and, and that knowledge to our people. And some of that knowledge has to be the knowledge of revolution because there is no question that the conditions that we face as a people will not change without revolutionary struggle. And so I don't see those on the other side of history as a hindrance. I see those who claim to be on this side of history, on the correct side of history, not doing enough and not fulfilling their responsibilities uh, to the masses of the people. Okay, let's go to your next playlist. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa Move. Your question or comment, Brother Jabari. <clears throat> yes, my question for the panel, first and foremost, I appreciate the um, scholarship offer in terms of the dynamics of what's going on in Cincinnati. My question is related to these kind of scenarios, and I'm going to preface my comment by saying that there was a recent economic study conducted that was talking about how Detroit had its major collapse and how several cities with prominent black populations in the U.S. are following a similar trajectory. And when you look at factors like gentrification and other issues, and my question for um, the presenter is, how do you see long-term what happened in Detroit? How is that going to um, shape what the um, future of cities with large black population in the U.S. is going to look like? Well, I think that's a very good question. I think to to kind of make it 
give an answer that, that's kind of simplistic. We have to look at South Africa uh, in, in the development of apartheid. The apartheid system was first developed in the United States and was used against the indigenous people here, which Columbus called them Indians, so we call them Indians. Uh, and with that, they were put on reservations and still on reservations to this day. And the, and the Europeans came and, and confiscated the, 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 best, the best of the majority of their land. And the Boers and the British, et cetera, in South Africa followed that same model. And they had a system, again, the system of apartheid, which we're familiar with, but we just don't see that the United States is also an apartheid system. And so, of course, we, everyone knows we were brought here as slaves, and we, for the most part, lived in the South. Uh, and it wasn't until after the ending of slavery or chattel slavery, 1863, uh, and it was after Reconstruction, et cetera, et cetera, that Africans began to move into the northern areas, particularly around World War One, because European, or when I say European, I mean U.S. white soldiers, European soldiers were being having to leave and, and go fight to defend the United States. And so it created a vacuum in terms of the need for labor. And so Africans from the south moved north. And they moved in areas, of course, that some some areas uh, in the cities, uh, Europeans lived. And what happened, the Europeans left the cities and, and went into the suburbs, and then the inner cities became all African, uh, to my understanding, across the And so now uh, everything is reversing itself. So now the Europeans want to be back in the cities, and, and so they are forcing the Africans out across the United States, period. And so what I see coming is very much similar to how society was structured in the, in South Africa, where the majority of Africans will be living outside of the cities, and the Europeans, uh, those who can afford it, will be living in the cities. And and so the inner city now will become more, so will become European, and then the suburbs will become more African. In this area, and I don't know about other areas uh, in terms of where you live, Section 8 and other uh, how, uh, other housing programs where low-income people can get housed, et cetera, uh, with government subsidies, those are now more in the suburban areas than they are in the inner city. So I see a flip in the population. And I think that Africans, for the most part, uh, will be denied uh, access to the, the uh Whatever the pleasures are, or the entertainment, etc., in the industry, but they will be, we will, we will be on the outside, and I don't see anything changing that uh, that process, because again, it's it's if you look at Washington D.C. for example, I lived there, I went there because it was the chocolate city, and uh, it was that when I got there in, in uh, 1979, but if you go there today. It is very far from being a chocolate city, and because of the money, et cetera, and someone has made the political decision that we must go, and I think that's a national effort. So I don't see that changing, but I think as organizers, our task is to wherever our people are at, find a way to get them organized and, and, and to continue to fight uh, the, the capitalist system and continue to fight for our freedom. Okay, let's go to our next participant. Participant, 
we'll go to Brother Moses. The mic is yours. Brother Moses. Yes. Um, yes, this article is very interesting. Uh, um, I, what do you see as the primary solution for for African American people or African people to um to solve this 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 problem, this social social economical problem, the political problem? What do you see as the final solution? Well, I think there's no other way other than revolutionary struggle. The, 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 we're fighting a system. We're not fighting a, a a group of people. We're fighting a class of people. That, but uh, there's there's no other answer that I can see from a historical basis other than revolutionary struggle. I think Cuba is a is a very good example of a society that was built, even though it was uh, imperialism had you know colonized the U.S. had colonized it. It used to be a haven for the rich who would go to Cuba to party and have fun. The women were prostituted. Uh, gambling was was one of the primary uh, entertainment for them. You know, it was a place. But the, the, the Cuban Revolution put an end to all that. And now they have one of the best health care systems in the world. Education is free. Uh, they, they, they produce so many doctors. They're exported around the world amongst the poor. It is an example of what is possible. But I think we have to understand as a people that we're fighting a system. And this system brought us here by force. Africa has been at war uh, with Europe since they've come to take us out. They've been at war. And that war has not stopped. And, you know, even when you, like when we use the term African-American, the American part of which many of us do, but it says that we identify with the entity that raped our motherland. And that's why we in the APRBGC say African, period. Because the only thing that America has ever done for African people in this society is to murder us, to exploit us economically, uh, to abuse us, to deny us legal rights, deny us human rights since we've been here. And that's why I say when you say what is the final solution, it was on the battlefield that we lost our dignity and our liberty, and it will be on the battlefield that our liberty and dignity is won. Brother Walimu, I know you in your paper you talk about the conditions in Cincinnati. Now, one of the things in Cincinnati um, when we want to find out is what is the relationship or the role of the police, the FBI, the ATF, in this whole gentrification process of cities across U.S. in general, and Cincinnati in particular, because we know that um, these institutions, they do have a particular role and a particular objective. How do you see these, the roles of these agencies as it relates to this whole process of gentrification, gentrification in the various African communities? Well, I, I would say I watched it uh, to... To, to retake the inner city, the first move was to criminalize it. And by criminalizing it, you began to see mass arrests um, in the streets, of our, particularly of our youth, particularly of our young uh, men. 
you know, the, the 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 being in the streets and hustling, as 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 we call it, is not something people just choose. It is an objective set of condition that forces many of our people to do what is, whatever they think is necessary to just survive. And so the distribution of, of drugs and all those kind of things for many of our youth is, is, is seen as something to be done out of necessity, just trying to eat. And, uh, and, and so when you see the, 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 the news and just recently – uh, in Cincinnati, Cincinnati was made to, over the Rhine area, which is inner city Cincinnati and and the West End, were designated as high crime areas. And so the Cincinnati police, the FBI, and the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, are doing operations in these areas. And operation means that they're going to make mass arrests of our young men and, and, and women who who may be involved. And so not only when they talk they talk about gentrification, are they going to redo the buildings? They're going to make sure those buildings are vacant so that those who want to move into those areas, those buildings are available, and two, that those that they feel safe. When they talk about a safe community, they don't mean us. And the only way that many of these uh, Europeans can feel safe in the inner city is that we can't be there because they have a fear of pulling misinformation and the propaganda of, of the capitalist media, the imagery that is projected of, of our people in the media. And so the role of the police and the FBI, ATF, and other governmental agencies is to clear the landscape, so to speak, is to sanitize it so that uh, it becomes easier for the corporations and for the the entering uh, ethnic groups, the European ethnic groups, white ethnic groups, can come in and feel comfortable that they can they can walk their little poodles and this that and the other and feel comfortable that there will be no harm coming to them, and uh, that's what it's about because. Of course, in our communities, we don't feel uncomfortable. We don't feel unsafe. We it's our community, uh, and, and so again, the, the local government and national government is working hand in hand with the corporations to sanitize the inner city of the African people. Okay, brother Walmu, and making your closing statement, can you again reiterate? What is the major idea you think you that you would like to try to that you try to convey to your reading audience when they read your paper? All money ain't good money, and how can they find out more about the nature of the work that your organization is doing? Well, they they can go to our website at www.a-aaprp-gc.org um, because I do think again, you know. The, the, the paper talks about a specific situation in a specific city, but that is only exemplary of the conditions which our people are faced in the United States, in the Caribbean, South Central America, Europe, Africa, et cetera. And, and, and so 
the point is that we need organization. We need all we all need to belong to an organization that is struggling for the mass of our people. Without organization, there is no answer to any of the things that we see ourselves confronted with. So if that document that I wrote and that research that I did is helpful in showing people the severity of the exploitation that we uh, suffer, then I've done my job. But people understanding the necessity for organization, uh, the necessity for all of us being a member of an organization that's struggling for our people, then we've missed the point. So that's how I would conclude. And on that note, to our listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Move. If you'd like to have a copy of this document, you can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail. Right now, we're going to make our next transition. We're going to go into a station break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the anti-war movement with Brother Fia Walito. And once we make that connection, again, you know, you can call in at 323-679. 0841 to get your views and your perspective. We can come back and talk about what's going on, what's happening, and an update on the anti-war movement. We'll have Brother Fear Walito. So right now we're going to pause for this cause, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time you can't help but say the word palestine people there have lost their land some have lost their home they live in other countries their freedom almost gone palestine Palestine. needs her freedom freedom. palestine Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, needs her freedom. Palestine, needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our love, people of all countries, of every race and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant 
the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back. That's right. Palestine needs our freedom. Africa does so. All of humanity needs its freedom. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Right now, we'll make a transition to get a better understanding update on the anti-war movement. And the person who can share an update and some information on us as it relates to the anti-war movement and the recent event that took place in Washington, D.C. on March the 30th, 30th, we'd like to bring in Brother Phil Walito, who is a member of UNIAC, as well as the center. Phil, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks very much, Lee. Much appreciated. You know, Phil, your organizations played a very intricate role in terms of this recent event on the 30th of March as relates to said no to war. And um, we'd like for you to give us an assessment of the nature of the event and what were some objectives and goals that you seek to accomplish and how would you um, make assessment of its success? Well, uh, in the context of this present period, when it's so difficult to raise uh, your voice against war and militarization, uh, I think it was a great success. And the march and rally that took place on Saturday, March 30th in Washington, D.C., was actually the kickoff to an entire week of actions uh, uh, called by a wide range of organizations to protest the fact that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, was uh, in town, uh, represented by the foreign ministers of its 29 member countries, to celebrate uh, its 70th anniversary. And uh, I know that uh, many people, if they're, if they even think of uh, of this uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization called NATO, um, they might have the impression that it's some kind of a protective alliance that is in some way good, um, if they think about it at all, um, when in reality it has become the major vehicle for the U.S. conducting wars across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, just one example that is enough to condemn this organization completely is the role that it played in the uh, 2010 uh, bombing campaign that destroyed uh, the most prosperous country in Africa, which was Libya, and uh, uh, led to the lynching of uh, the, uh, the leader of the country, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, um, and uh, a literal lynching, and um, now that country is is uh, what the uh, the bourgeois pundits call a failed state, in which uh, extremists have moved in and taken the weapons that uh, were controlled by the the former government, and have spread uh, terror throughout uh, Western Africa 
in the Republic of Mali, in Burkina Faso, uh, in Niger, uh, and further south. Um, and it's been a uh, this NATO has been a very destructive uh, apparatus uh, controlled by the U.S. that is now moving into Latin America, and is recruiting uh, countries of, uh, of Colombia and Brazil, which just happened to border the beleaguered country of Venezuela, where the U.S. is trying to foment a coup to overthrow the legitimate government and take control of that country's vast oil resources. So there are a lot of reasons to protest NATO, and uh, we're, uh, we're proud uh, in the Virginia Defenders to uh, have played a role in organizing the march and rally on the 30th and then to attend uh, the other uh, protests and conferences that took place in D.C. throughout the following week. You know, Fia, in terms of organizing these various activities, what would you say was one of the most challenging things to do in terms of mobilization as relates to getting communities of color, communities of press out to become active participants? Particularly wars throughout the world probably affect, affect more of these communities than others. So what were some of the challenges yeah. in terms of trying to get the nature of their participation? And how well did they participate from your assessment? Well, in terms of in terms of the the march uh, and rally, um, the majority uh, actually there were two rallies on the thirtieth. One before the march, and then one after. Uh, the speakers were majority people of color, um, and I feel real good about that because the defenders drew up the initial proposal for the speakers list, um, and uh, the march itself uh, was majority white. Um, as most of these uh, anti-war marches are for historical reasons. But it had a higher percentage of, uh, of black, Latino, Asian uh, organizations and individuals than is typical. And, uh, and, and that was due to several reasons. One is uh, uh, the participation by uh, black and Latino and Asian organizations uh, in spreading the word uh, about the mobilization. Um, and also some effort that was made uh, in the D.C. area to reach out uh, to various communities. But the, the obstacle, when you ask what's the most difficult thing, is that um, the general consciousness in this country about what the U.S. government is doing uh, in other countries is at one of the lowest periods, maybe the lowest periods, in the last 50 years. And, and I say that because I've been involved in the anti-war movement for more than 50 years. Um, and always uh, when, when uh, activists were trying to organize and reach out and, and build marches and protests and vigils and public meetings and forums and rallies, uh, one of the uh, strongest responses always was uh, from the black community, which had statistically, according to all polls, uh, a, a higher degree of opposition to war. Um, and uh, I think uh, a great deal of that comes from the experience of the black community during the Vietnam War, where uh, there was a, a, a higher percentage of U.S. combat troops that were black compared to uh, the black population as a whole. And people understood that, you know, came to understood that they were being used as cannon fodder in a war that never should have been fought in the first place. 
and the devastation that that war uh, wrecked on the black community in terms of uh, introduction of drugs, in terms of uh, a loss of life, in terms of uh, physical uh, disabilities, in terms of post-traumatic stress syndrome, which was not even recognized uh, as a condition at the time, um, and the high percentage of people who wound up going to prison, um, these and, and leaving families without a you know a male figure in the home, these this was generally understood uh, in the black community uh, as, as a consequence of, of this terrible war, um, and it was during the Obama years when uh, the general impulse of folks in the black community as well as uh, many white progressives was to refrain from criticizing uh, the president because he was the first black president and because he was under such racist attack uh, every day that he was in the White House. Um, And uh, there was reluctance to criticize him, feeling that that would uh, increase the the danger that he was facing. Um, But as a result, there there came to be a, a, a lessening of critical analysis about the uh, the role that the U.S. military was playing, so that when Libya was bombed, that was under President Obama's watch, and I don't think any white uh, a white president could have gotten away with destroying an African country as President Obama did with Libya. So that after eight years of the Obama administration. Uh, there was a pronounced uh, lowering of consciousness in the black community over what the U.S. was doing uh, overseas, including uh, the introduction of U.S. military troops into virtually every country on the African continent, coordinated by the African Command, uh, short-termed AFRICOM. Um, Now, fortunately, um, there are, uh, they have emerged uh, several black organizations that are attempting to raise consciousness uh, on that issue. Uh, one is the Black is, uh, black is Back Coalition, um, which is led by the African People's Socialist Party, um, and a newer formation called uh, the Black Alliance for Peace, uh, which is headed up by uh, Jamu Baraka, the former uh, vice presidential candidate for the Green Party, which has uh, recruited uh, a number of uh, important leaders uh, in the black activist community. And they finished up the week with a, uh, a public meeting uh, in D.C. at Plymouth Congregational Church, a uh, historically black church, that, that drew about uh, somewhere between 125 and 145 people, about two-thirds of them black. Who uh, And that was the most dynamic meeting that took place uh, during that week of activities. So um, their mission is to try to uh, re-educate and and raise consciousness in the black community. And I think that that's an important new uh, development in the anti-war movement, that that consciousness raising is not going to be done uh, particularly effectively by white activists. Uh, It has to be uh, by black activists, and that is happening. So the biggest challenge was the general lack of consciousness uh, across the board, and then particularly uh, a retreat in that level of consciousness in the black community that took place during the Obama years. But I think the events of the uh, of, of, rich, uh, of the last uh, of that week, uh, from uh, March 30th to April 4th, 
represented a turning around of that situation. Modest, modest, tenuous, uh, fragile, but yet uh, a reversal of the backward trend that had been uh, observed, both in terms of the anti-war wound as a whole and particularly in terms of black participation. Hey, I want you to hold on for a second. We do have a caller from Cameroon when we're talking about the impact of wars. Right now, I know they have a civil war going on in Cameroon, and we'd like to have this caller say a few words about getting us an update of what's happening in Cameroon. We're bringing Sister Celine. Uh, welcome to the program. What is the present status of Cameroon as relates to this internal strike that's going on? <laughs> Uh, good evening to everyone. Um, I'm just thanking God again this time that I again to talk on the what is happening in Cameroon. I can say happening to our African uh, family all over the whole world. As I just listened from you people speaking, oh, over there. I think what is really troubling Africans is the problem we are having everywhere, or the problem of marginalization. Or to what I have heard, it's saying it's tilting to the same direction, marginalization, because that's what we Africans always feel everywhere we are that we are being marginalized. And uh, the earlier we think of how we can forge ahead, the better for us that only to begin to look around us, looking on our marginalization uh, status. Um, I want to say that there is something that people have said there. It has really touched my heart because in many countries, People believe that there is democracy and uh, human rights in America. But if you have a problem, Americans can come, come and solve your problem. We are suffering in Cameroon because America is hosting the people who are bringing crisis in our country. I know there is a problem, but if there is a problem, then we need solutions. And then if there are people that are supporting the problem, and which we think that we can go to them for solutions, then the problem will have difficulties in having oh, the solution. In Cameroon, we are still going inside the crisis. The crisis are still going on seriously. A day cannot pass without us losing one or two people. That means every day people are being killed. Every day, people are losing their homes. Every day, people are losing their family members. Every day, people are dying of hunger. Every blessed day, people are sick because they lack the, 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 the needed communities, commodities that they can use for life. Oh, they can't drink good water because they're hiding in bushes. They migrate to places that they they need water there that is not good for them to drink. And it pushes them 
to become sick, to become hungry, to be suffering. So there's a lot of suffering in uh, Cameroon. As long as this crisis is still going on and they are not stopping, we are still really suffering a lot in Cameroon because of the war, which they call it crisis. It's a war. Yeah, it's a war because of marginalization. The English people feel that the Francophones are marginalizing them. And it became a war, which they pretend to call it crisis. I don't think they can be killing people every day and they call it crisis. Crisis should be that people are striking, not that people are being shut down. Everybody is dying. The, the, the youth are our children. The army is our children. They are all our people that are being killed every day, killing themselves. So it is a terrible war. In one country, people should be fighting against themselves. Not that we are fighting against another country that has come and attacked us, but we're fighting against ourselves. It's really disturbing. It's really painful. It's, uh, I tell you, uh, I, I feel bad every day. So I don't know how we can get solutions to these problems that we, the African people, are going through every year. And you see, United Nations is just sitting there. We believe that United Nations could come in with a solution. But we are not seeing any solution, and people are just dying. What was the need of creating such an organization, saying that when there's a problem, there are the people to solve it? And then when people are dying, they sit quiet and allow people to die. When they die so many, then they come in. Why do they come in? At the tail end, when they see that so many people have been killed, I think they should take it into consideration that when there's a problem, they come in immediately to solve it, not to keep that when people die so many before they come to solve the problem. It really touches my heart. And I don't know how to solve the problem. I'm praying that God should raise up people that can solve this problem for us. Or else all okay. our children will die. Yes. Or well, else we'll lose all our youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can thank you for sharing that reality with us. We'll go back to Brother Phil. Brother Phil, as you heard, Sister from Cameroon, talking about the impact of war in the country. When you talk to people on a daily basis about this whole question of um, this movement, anti-military, anti-war movement, what do you tell them in terms of what could they really do to help make an impact in terms of um, stopping this this ongoing uh, war machine that is taking place all around the world? What do you really tell them in terms of what can they really do? Well, um, let me let me just say I really appreciated uh, hearing about this situation in Cameroon. I have not been following that myself, uh, uh, but you know, uh, my wife Anna Edwards is uh, descended from uh, people uh, who live in present-day Cameroon, um, and uh, she she's involved with supporting uh, various civil projects in Mali. So that's where our attention has been more focused. But uh, 
I'm going to uh, look into that situation now that you've raised it, um, and, and thank you for that information. Um, if you're looking to see, you know, how can you actually stop a war, you have to look back into history to see those times when anti-war movements actually uh, had an effect. Um, and I think uh, the most powerful uh, movement uh, was certainly the one that developed during the Vietnam War years when uh, opposition to the war became so widespread um, that it, uh, it uh, spread into the U.S. military itself and uh, resistance to that war grew among active duty GIs um, such that it became a factor in the uh, U.S. government having to consider whether it wanted to continue to pursue the, that conflict and eventually decided that the cost was too high. And by that time, the U.S. military was, was more than fraying at the edges. It was, it was actually facing open rebellion in many areas. Um, but that requires um, uh, a general public consciousness, and that's what's missing today. Um, one of the really dangerous things is that the, the youngest generations of activists have come up in a period where the peace movement, the anti-war movement, was very weak. Um, and uh, as a result, um, they haven't uh, been made aware uh, of uh, the various conflicts that are going on around the world. I actually heard uh, on NPR the other day, National Public Radio, some commentator talking about how this was a period when the U.S. was at peace. The U.S. is actively at war in Libya, in Somalia, in uh, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, of uh, seven countries. Um, and it's involved in covert wars throughout Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, and this, this general lack of consciousness uh, is our biggest obstacle. Um, in a very modest way, the defenders are, are, have been trying to address this issue. Uh, last year, we had uh, three uh, forums dealing with international issues. Um, and we just recently formed a new committee uh, within the defenders called the Stop the Wars at Home and Abroad uh, Committee, um, and uh, that will be hosting forums on, uh, on various international issues, such as the wars in the Middle East, such as uh, U.S. aggression against Venezuela, such as Palestine. Um, and, of course, we'd like to talk to, uh, to you all about uh, uh, collaborating on some issues in defense of Cuba, which has uh, uh, come under increasing pressure from the Trump administration now that has identified Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba as uh, the troika of tyranny, as they say. Um, so this is a very dangerous period we're going into. Um, but it's, it's the, first, the first thing is mass consciousness, and that has to be addressed by education. And I would also suggest that we take a close look at the role of uh, Senator Timothy Kane. Uh, who is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who began his political activism uh, opposing U.S. wars in Central America as a young activist here in Richmond, and now recently traveled to the border of Venezuela and Colombia to egg on the uh, U.S. aggression against Venezuela and has uh, been uh, increasingly uh, playing a prominent role in supporting the Trump administration's effort to overthrow the legitimate uh, elected government 
uh, in Venezuela uh, in favor of this uh, phony uh, opposition movement, uh, the, the only purpose of which is to turn over Venezuela's vast oil resources to U.S. oil companies. Um, and uh, a, a tremendous amount of work has to be done. And as you know, there are very few of us in Richmond and the Virginia area who raise any uh, anti-war issues at all. Uh, and this is, a, this is different from the past uh, uh, in the city and in the country as a whole. So we have a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, and those of us who uh, have an anti-imperialist uh, perspective I think really need to work in closer collaboration to try to reach broader layers of the public and uh, alert them to what is being done in our name overseas with our money and our children's blood. Great for you. We're not going to do right now. We're going to take a few phone calls, and then we ask you to make a closing statement on the overall nature of what the future look like in terms of the anti-war um, machine. So right now we're going to take... Brother Haki, your comments as we talk about this anti-war movement. Question comments, Brother Haki. Okay. While I wait for Brother Haki, we go to Brother Anthony. Any comments or questions you'd like to make, Brother Anthony, on the anti-war movement? Yes. Uh, Phil, uh, could you address to what extent do you think uh, the lack of information uh, contributes to the de- difficulty of uh, organizing, uh, you know, uh, uh, greater, op- uh, you, you know, the anti-war movement. It seems as if uh, this, in addition, uh, you know, to the events that you described earlier, there's been a lull in terms of uh, investigative uh journalism kind of like when we uh you know what occurred you know during uh during the Watergate era and uh when uh, you know when uh you know the, the information about uh the, the 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 crack cocaine and contra connection was being made you know during the 90s and it seems mm-hmm. as if there's been an effort by capitalism to suppress any information about, uh, you know, uh, 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 about what is really happening in these conflicts mm-hmm. and uh, which would perform a, a better basis for people which to make those decisions. And I'm talking specifically about, uh, you know, the Julian Assange uh, situation, which is uh, beyond the, uh, you know, the, the time left for this program, but you know, but there seems to be a lull of information that would also make it difficult to organize against war. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you're right, and and I think even more uh, uh, dangerous than the lack of information is the lack of information about information. <laughs> there, there are sources uh, uh, out there. Of course, with the internet, you know, there's a million sources, but there are some very reputable sources that are reporting. Um, on what is going on in different areas of, of the world um, and exposing the role of the U.S. government and the military and the intelligence services. But most people don't know about them. Um, you know, the Defenders have a quarterly newspaper called the Virginia Defender, and we're devoting two pages of each issue to international issues. But I think what we should do for the upcoming issue that will be out in June is to run a list of some of the sources um, uh, if people got a pencil or pen, 
Um, I would suggest uh, a, a few to start with, and one is the website of the Black Alliance for Peace, which is only two years old, but is doing some very good educational work, Black Alliance for Peace. There's the Black Agenda Report, which has been out for a number of years, which reports on a wide range of issues, domestic and international. There's the Pan-African Newswire, which concentrates on uh, on it's it's based in Detroit. It concentrates on issues in the African continent. There's the Alliance for Global Justice, which is very good for reporting on uh, situations in uh, Latin America uh, and the Caribbean. Um, Popular Resistance, which is a, a website that uh, it also deals with domestic and international issues, and has been uh, very good about. Uh, 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 running investigative reports on what is going on in uh, uh, in Venezuela. Um, I know a number of people, uh, probably a dozen now, who have visited Venezuela in the last six or eight weeks, and they all come back with the same story, that there is nothing in the popular commercial media that is true about what is going on in Venezuela. It's like the commercial media has created an alternate reality. Um uh, so there, there are, are certain, and, and there's probably a good half dozen books that would be wonderful to start off with for people to educate themselves. The Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, uh, A Peace to End All Peace uh, by uh, uh, David Frankel about the, uh, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Middle East. Um, it's it's incumbent on us to educate ourselves because at this point um, there is very little in the commercial media which uh, is presenting an alternative view, and that is largely because uh, the U.S. ruling class uh, is pretty much united on its view of the world at this point, that uh, the U.S. must control it and and it doesn't want to hear any criticism. You will rarely hear any Democratic Party politician criticize uh, any aspect of U.S. foreign policy, uh, whether it's U.S. intervention in, in the Venezuela or, or the lockstep support for the state of Israel. Uh, none of it uh, is, 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 there's very little cracks um, in the entire Democratic Party edifice. Um, and for those of us moving around a, a bit, uh, that was not true for the Vietnam War period. And uh, sections of the ruling class decided that was a losing war and they needed to get out and began to let some some information out. Now, the case you just raised, Julian Assange, um, the, the, the charges against uh, Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, have to do with a very technical point about allegedly hacking into a password protecting a secure computer system, where the actual reason for U.S. government hostility to Assange is that in 2010, uh, he released a treasure trove of information that was uh, collected by uh, U.S. intelligence specialist uh, Chelsea Manning, Bradley Manning at the time, um, that exposed U.S. war crimes uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's why they hate him, and that's why they want to get him. But WikiLeaks has been, uh, while it's it's, uh, played both sides of the fence at times, it has been an invaluable resource for exposing government secrets that, uh, that, uh, about things that the American public should know about. So, um, yeah, there is a, a lack of information, but 
there's a lack of information about what information exists out there. And I think that uh, uh, what we're going to try to do is, uh, is bring more of these sources out through our newspaper and our online presence. And we're going to also spend the summer uh, uh, upgrading our online presence to try to have more of a, a, a louder, more effective voice on these issues, as well as the domestic things we work on, such as prisons and Confederate monuments and saving Shackle Bottom. Oh, and I'm sorry if you excuse me just for squeezing in one more point. Tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock, there's going to be a very important meeting dealing with the future of Shackle Bottom. It's Mayor of our Stoney's uh, uh, public, first public meeting of what he is calling the Chaco Alliance, which is supposed to guide the city's approach towards development in Chaco Bottom. And it's extremely important who, for people who understand the historical importance of the bottom to the black community in particular to turn out tomorrow at 6 o'clock at the Main Street Station uh, and demand that the city government recognize the popular support for the community-generated proposal for a nine-acre Shackle Bottom Memorial Park and that that proposal not be lost in another uh, whirlwind of uh, discussions by technocrats and highly paid consultants and elected officials and appointees uh, that would uh, subvert the community will for this nine-acre park that could tell this true story of, of Shackle Bottom uh, which was once the epicenter of the U.S. domestic slave trade. So that's 6 o'clock tomorrow evening, Monday, at the Main Street Station. Sorry for slipping that in, but it deals with the issue of self-determination for oppressed peoples, which is the guiding principle that we need to follow in, in examining U.S. Uh, policies overseas. I'm going to have to take one more final call for you. Fifth, we're going to have a station break. We will bring in... Brother Moses, Brother Moses, your question or comment, please, as it really relates to the anti-war movement. Brother Moses, how you there? Okay, I guess we have some technical difficulties with Brother Moses. What we're going to do right Hello? now is going to... Yes, Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Question or comment? Oh, yeah, I... I... I um, am wondering um, how how your out the brothers' outlook on uh, on the movement in terms of revolution and change and how change would take place. Does he have faith in the working class as a revolutionary force, uh, um, and that um, racism can be um, downplayed or? or or uh, eliminated uh, within the movement uh, and in order to have revolution. Uh, I, I wonder his, what his prognosis on that is. Thank you, Moses. Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's probably the most critical question um, that we could be asking, um, and thank you for raising it. Um, yes, I, I have long-term faith that the working class in this country can rise to the occasion and, and play its role uh, as uh, used to be described as the motive force of history and uh, challenge the rule of the capitalist class. Um, I think that the, the danger that uh, we are facing 
is uh, the deeply embedded racism that has characterized this country from its very beginning um, and the conscious attempts by forces like uh, not just the Trump administration, but powerful corporate forces to convince uh, white working people that uh, their real enemy is not uh, the person who owns the business that they work for or the people who own the bank that holds their money or the landlord that threatens to kick them out if they can't afford the rent or foreclose on their home if they can't afford the mortgage. But the real enemy is unemployed black men or uh, Latino immigrants coming up uh, from Mexico and Central America or Muslims uh, attempting to practice their religion in a world in a country that claims to have religious freedom. I, I think the danger uh, of splitting the working class is greater today than it has been uh, in many years, and uh, that the that the uh, the approach that uh, those who, of us who consider ourselves revolutionaries need to take is a dual one um, and a division of labor. I think it's primarily the responsibility of white activists to confront uh, the white working class uh, on the issue of racism and to uh, explain um, in a concrete, uh, 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 hands-on-the-ground uh, way that racism holds back white workers. Um, and that's a tough sell. Um, the, the times when I have seen uh, real racial unity among working people has always been during a time of class conflict. Um, I was in uh, Norfolk uh, in 1979. I was a shop steward with the Carpenters and Journeys Union and went over to Newport News when the, uh, the organizing campaign broke out uh, by the uh, United Steelworkers uh, to organize the Newport News Shipyard and dry dock company, 15,000 workers, the biggest organizing drive uh, in uh, the United States since World War II. And um, it, it was a, a mixed workforce, and always there had been, uh, 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 there had been several attempts to organize uh, a union there, and always the company would go to the white workers and say, you know, if a union comes in, the blacks are going to get all the good jobs. And that had a, that had a ring to it, a ring of truth to it, because the white jobs were all held by white workers. I mean, the, the good jobs, the, the, the skilled trade jobs were held by white workers. And so they resisted uh, the, uh, the, the union drive. And then there was a civil rights uh, a lawsuit filed by a group of black workers demanding that the skilled trades be opened up, and it was successful. And so uh, those trades became uh, much more mixed racially. And when the United Steelworkers came around, that argument that the union was going to uh, result in uh, whites losing their skilled jobs didn't hold because there already was a mix of workers. So uh, attacking racism first and then building class unity uh, was the key to, uh, to a, a unified drive. And then there was the physical aspect where I remember standing on the picket line with white and black steel workers, uh, members of the union, staring across the street and a mob of strike breakers who were preparing to cross the street and attempt to get through the gate. And a black worker on the right side of me said, all they got to do is touch one of them. It doesn't matter white or black. And we all stand together. And on the left side was a white worker, an older man who said, if we had, 
if our parents had dealt with this situation, meaning the racial situation years ago, we wouldn't be in this situation today. And these were white and black workers standing side by side, willing to risk their lives in defense of each other in order to build their union. And the racism evaporated like, uh, like, like uh, dry ice in, in, in the sky. But it was, it, it was because they were fighting for a common purpose and the white workers understood that the black workers had strength that they needed. And they also understood that their own racism had, had prevented that unity in the past. So I think it's possible I do think it's possible to overcome the racism uh, by white workers, particularly white male workers, uh, and to build class unity and a revolutionary movement. But it's up to white activists to do the hard, uh, in-the-trenches work by being involved in the lives and struggles of the working class um, and uh, not coming in from the outside and lecturing but to live in the community, to work in the community, to struggle in the community, and, and to constantly confront racism and explain uh, why uh, racial unity is necessary and why it's, it's so necessary for white workers to stand up against racism. When they, they see a, a black worker being harassed by the police, to step in, to step in and speak out. That builds unity. There's never going to be unity until the black community feels that white working people can be a reliable ally. And I don't believe that's the situation today. I think a tremendous amount of work has to be done. And if we want to see fundamental change in this country, the struggle against racism has to be first and foremost. And an education of the white working class is to the principle of self-determination, the right of self-determination for the black community to determine its own road to liberation. If we can get that across, then we got a chance. Otherwise, I'm afraid we're in for a very increasingly difficult time in this country and that uh, there's no guarantee of victory. So we've got a great deal of work to do and not a whole lot of time to do it in. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a station break. When we come back, we ask each one of the participants and panelists to make a one-minute closing remark. We are pause for this cause. This is Africa to Move. We'll be right back.
becoming better with each other. When we become better with each other, we'll be more powerful. We'll be more unique. You know, if no communication skills, I mean, we have to come together as people knowing, like, if we all for the same cause, what what doesn't matter, you know? We have to stick together, man, you know? That's all I feel. Like, we can be great with, with one another, you know, as people. So, you know, I do. And Brother Evans, again, give us, can you give us the email or contact information for people who want to support your family in terms of um, the recent loss of your sister by the shooting of a police officer in Miami? Give us the contact yes, information, email, etc. Uh, contact um, contact information is w, I mean write dot um write dot write dot um Allison at um ninety five at yahoo dot com. I use uh that's the email. My phone number is nine five four six three six zero three four four. You can call me. I'm doing a rally this week Friday, and I appreciate all the support I can get, and I appreciate being on y'all show. In Miami okay, at the Golden Lake. We thank you for your contribution for today's program. Next one with your brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we that uh, that people must join an organization that is working for people's liberation. Uh, we cannot do anything against, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, our our enemy, which is imperialism, and capitalism and all of its manifestations, unless we are organized and politically educated. For more information about the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC), please visit our website at www.a-aprp. Dash GC dot org. Thank you, Brother Anthony and Brother Haki. Your final thoughts for tonight? Yeah, a couple of things. First, African awareness will be doing a travel uh, the road of liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. The trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. More information, we ask you to call us at 202-714-9435. Or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two at gmail.com. And we encourage people to go to see Cuba firsthand for itself because uh, it's very important in terms of understanding the role between institutions and the individuals who live under those institutions. Uh, and finally, I would just simply say, you know, I'm, I certainly hope that it's getting to jail, uh, that when we talk about the perilous nature of this situation that African people are confronted with in the society, it's not an exaggeration, and we got to understand this is very, very serious. And if we don't formulate some kind of strategy in terms of moving forward, at a very minimum, defending ourselves, then we're in real, 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 real trouble. So I encourage people to get on the road, to build institutions, build organizations, and deal with these critical questions that are so important, so aspirations of our people. And aside from that, I just want to say, you know, as usual, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, and you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Thank all our panelists. And our guests for today's program, Brother Alfonso, Fio Alito, and Brother Wally Mokito, we thank you very much for the critical information that you have have shared with our people, that you have shared with our people tonight. In closing, we just would like to say, remember, without information, you cannot think, 
and with our organization, you cannot think clearly. Join some organization that is working for the liberation of your people and humanity. If you feel like you can't find one that will represent what you think needs to be done, then you have the responsibility to develop one. Until next time, we'll see you next week from 7 to 9 p.m. Any comments or questions that you have, we have concerning this production, Africa on the Move, please email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com. So until next time, let's continue to fight for our equal rights. Decision was made that Africans the world over 
must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round, and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. 
We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? 
2016. Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose 
Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Thus, thus students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and in a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. 
If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populists. We did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. 
Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> course. As he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently.